there's a question that would get asked. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Yes or no? I had to check the box now. I thought I was gonna either be dead or overdose by the time I was 25. So again, it didn't really matter as much to me. And I ended up reporting to jail a week after my 21st birthday, October 21st, 2008. My soon-to-be cellmate I met at a Scrabble table. To this day, I mean, I've been a trainer now for over 10 years and seen a lot of people work out. It's one of the most jacked, fit guys I'd ever seen at that time. And he was like, what are you doing in here, man? He, he could just tell there was something off with me. I have this horrific opiate addiction that I needed to kick. All the fears and things you would think about of what goes on in jail, trust me, they were going through my head because here I was, unathletic, severely overweight, out of shape, unhealthy, no confidence, nothing. That's Doug Bobst. And this is episode 135 of The Proof Podcast. Here we are again together for another episode. Welcome back. I hope you've been keeping well. Hope all is well in your neck of the woods. For any individuals joining us for the first time, I can't believe it took you this long. Anyway, welcome. We are all super happy, of course, to have you join us. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. So by now, you've probably realized that from time to time, I like to step away from nutrition. I enjoy speaking to people about other topics, especially their struggles and the learnings from those struggles. This is partly a selfish endeavor. Strangely enough, I do have other interests outside of nutrition, but also an endeavor that I think is important for all of us while nutrition is important, I don't necessarily value it above other aspects of our life, like exercise, mental health, sleep, etc. The food we eat is incredibly important, extremely powerful, but I believe in a very holistic approach to health and always have. You can't just have one pillar, get one pillar right and expect good health across the board. And with that comes conversations that go beyond the foods we put into our mouths. I sort of see it like a tree, the plant-proof tree, you could call it. The, The trunk of the tree, the center part, is nutrition science. But the branches represent different pillars of health. And from time to time, I like to diverge off onto the branches and then come back to the trunk as the piece that's holding this plant-proof tree, and by that I mean community, together. Anyway, I trust that that made sense. Did it? I hope so. It was a, a roundabout way anyway of saying that today's episode is not focused on nutrition science. But in the same breath, I believe it is equally as instructive and enjoyable as the nutrition-focused episodes. So come with an open mind and I'm sure you will walk away from this exchange with some useful learnings. And the guests bringing those learnings, you ask? Mr. Doug Bobst. Doug was introduced to me by a few friends 
each of whom said to me, they said, Simon, you have to get this guy on. You need to sit down with this guy for a chat and you need to share his story. As you'll hear, like all of us, Doug has had his struggles, battling addiction and falling on the wrong side of the law as a young adult. He was sentenced to prison at Maryland's Harford County Detention Centre. While the, the lead up to his imprisonment is interesting, what I found most interesting was the way he shifted his mindset after being incarcerated. The most important part of his ability to circumvent adversity being centered, centered around self-belief and a shift from negative to positive self-talk something that I think all of us can benefit from thinking about, how we speak to ourselves. It's so easy to slip into negative self-talk. happens to all of us, which can then really hold us back from feeling good about our lives and, and making the most of our days. I'm really not sure feeling like this is a good use of our time. Actually, I often think about this, and I have done since I was a teenager, really, We get one shot at this thing called life. One shot. Our existence, our entire existence is a mere blip in the universe. Each of us is expected to get about 29,000 days of life on earth. 29,000 days of life on earth. That's if we're lucky to live to 80 years of age. Now, earth is 4.5 billion years old. That's right, we get 80 years if we're lucky. The earth has been here for 4.5 billion years. And if that's not crazy enough, scientists have estimated the probability of you being born, yes, you listening to this right now, was about one in 400 trillion. One in 400 trillion. When you think about it like this, Not only are we not here for a long time, approximately 80 years or 29,000 days, but it's a miracle we are even here in the first place. So why spend our days feeling sad and miserable or arguing with the people around us? I certainly wouldn't wish that for anyone. My hope is that if you are feeling down, stuck, dissatisfied with your life and finding yourself trapped in negative inner dialogue, that Doug's story may provide that spark that you need to begin shifting your life to a happier one. That's it. And with that said, this is Doug Bobst. I hope you enjoy the episode, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, 
a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Doug, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for a long time. Simon, thanks for having me. Likewise, I've enjoyed getting to know you and really looking forward to our chat. I told you yesterday that I've purposefully avoided listening to your story on other shows, but I can say that multiple people have given me a bit of a heads up, including Dr. B, who is a mutual friend of ours. They have told me that you have to get dug on. And I did search your name and I saw that you've been on a few shows and I spoke to a few other people and everyone was like, you have to get this guy on to share his story. So all I know is that things got a little wild for you for quite some time there. And I know that you ended up in prison and you faced serious adversity in your life and you've come out the other side. And that other side is what I've seen and, and what I've got to know. And you've built this life with great meaning. So we need to unpack this and I'm really excited to, to sort of explore this journey of yours. How far back shall we go? Because I have, I've got all day for you. <laughs> and I got all night here in the States. So, you know, it's interesting. And, and I know your audience, your show is geared towards helping people become healthy, helping people become the best version of themselves. And what's interesting about this and why I wanted to have this conversation with you is health saved my life. And I think we need to go back to my childhood, I think, so people can 
understand why I ended up in jail in the first place. Because here's the thing, you know, nobody ever expects to go to jail by the choices that we make. But unfortunately, as a byproduct of just stacking bad decision after bad decision, it happens. And what's fascinating is that today I host a podcast called The Adversity Advantage, where I help people use adversity to their advantage. But growing up, I used adversity to my disadvantage. And what I mean by that is as a kid, I was battling all types of fear, insecurities, trauma, pain in the most unhealthy way possible. My parents got divorced when I was five. I suffered every form of abuse. I was picked on in school. I was bullied. I never had a girlfriend in grade school. I loved sports, right? Simon, I know you love baseball. Like I loved sports, collected baseball cards, football cards, watched sports on TV, tried to play sports, did all the things, but I was unathletic. Like I never made the travel teams. So I started to... Where were you growing up? Growing up in Baltimore, the greater Baltimore area in Maryland. That's right. We spoke about Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah. Iron Man. So I went to many Oriole games in my childhood. And what's crazy, I guess, as I look back, is I started to just stack all these traumas, all these insecurities and these pains, and it was just bound to explode whenever it could. And initially... I know you talk a lot about nutrition on the show. Initially, I think my first crutch was food. I would eat things like cinnamon buns and sausage and bacon for breakfast. And then for dinner, I'd eat tons of pasta and pizza and processed carbs as a kid. What's interesting is that a lot of kids eat that stuff. But I think I just ate a little bit more because I was masking pain and combine that that I had the worst genetics. I mean, that to my understanding, I started to gain weight at a young age. Again, stacking even more trauma. And I'm now buying husky pants as a kid. I'm buying bigger clothes. I'm wondering why I'm getting a little pudgy when some of my friends aren't. And what really led to me taking a turn from the worst was marijuana. Now, I want to frame it this way. I know pot is legal in many places today. I know a lot of people are using it in different ways. But I think what's important to understand here is not the fact that I was smoking pot or I did, it's why. And I also want to say that I never thought in a million years that one hit off a marijuana pipe would lead to me being incarcerated. Nobody does because if they knew that was going to happen, nobody would smoke because the consequences would far outweigh the gain of whatever you were doing. Feel free to interrupt me if you have any questions along the way. I want to unpack the why you turned to that. And you mentioned then that you had some trauma in your early parts of your life and you were dealing with that and what was happening with your parents. And then also you were experiencing some weight gain. Can you recall how you felt about yourself at that point in your life and how you spoke to yourself? What was your narrative about who Doug was at that time of your life before you started dabbling in marijuana and those sort of circles? There was many things that were going through my my mind. There was a big feeling of emptiness, Simon, because I didn't have any sense of self-identity because every time I tried to establish some sense of identity with myself, I couldn't seem to get a grasp on it. Like I said, I thought that I was going to do something in in sports because I just I loved it so much. The thing was, I got cut, and then every time I would try and you know ask a girl out, I would get rejected, and and so my sense of self became super low, and I began to loathe myself and resent myself, and began to ask different questions. Right, because when I was when I was young and my parents split, 
I was the only kid in my friend group whose parents were divorced. So I started asking myself, like, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I like this? I started asking all these questions and I thought of myself as a loser. I think what tends to happen is, is our perception of ourselves gets hijacked based on like lies that we tell ourselves and, and other people tell us and we start to believe them. And I was told that I looked like I had Down syndrome in grade school and I was bullied. So I looked in the mirror and I saw this Doug who was this overweight loser who was never going to succeed in life. And it was just in a lot of pain. And that's why drugs helped medicate a lot of that. Yeah, I can relate to, to some of that. My parents divorced when I was 10. And as a young kid, you do begin to ask, was I responsible for any of this breakdown in the relationship and so forth? So I can relate to that. So you started to feel inferior to your peers. And you say that this then contributed to this turning to marijuana. Let's, let's step through that. Talk to me about how that even became an opportunity, something on your radar in the first place. Well, I definitely, to your point, felt inferior. I thought something was wrong with me because I was like, why do all of my friends have girlfriends and I don't? Why is everybody else making the sports teams and I'm not? Why is everybody else's parents together and I'm not? So yeah, I definitely felt that way. And with pot, like back then, and I don't know what it's like now, obviously I'm not a kid anymore, but it was like the cool thing to do was to get high. A lot of the musicians had done it in the past. It was like a thing that people were doing. People partied. And because I had no sense of identity, I wanted to fit in with the cool kids because I wanted to be cool. And what happened was one of my neighbors was like, Doug, you got to try this thing, this pot I have. And clearly I knew I wasn't making a good decision. I knew about the dangers of it. It's not like I was oblivious to it, but I was just looking for any way possible to fit in. And so I remember vividly to this day, I'll never forget it, taking that first hit. And I felt this monkey come off my back where I could be at peace with myself. All my worries were gone. All my fears were gone. I didn't have to worry if I was ever going to find love. I didn't have to worry if I was ever going to succeed in school. I didn't have to worry what my relationships were going to be like. I could just be me. And what happened was I got addicted to that feeling because I was like, wow, if I can be comfortable in my own skin, I need to do whatever it takes to feel this way. And that's what led into me doing it every day, selling it on the side, and then getting myself in, into more trouble as a teenager. So at this point in your life, what was your relationships like with your parents? And were you living with one of your parents? How did that living arrangement look? So it was a typical arrangement from a of a divorced family where we split custody 50-50. You know, one weekend we'd be spent with one parent, one with another, and we'd split time during the week. And as far as my relationships, I think my mom took the divorce pretty hard just based on what happened. And my dad, my dad and I, our relationship today is much better than it was when we were kids, but him and I never saw eye to eye. He was, let's just say it was just, it was hard to grow up with him as my dad. I mean, I, I, I love my dad and I'm very thankful because I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for him. But let's just say it wasn't easy to grow up in that environment. And, and so when I began smoking pot, clearly my behavior started to change as it does with many people who start using drugs. So I started acting out more and lashing out. And my mom started to, to take note of it. And then that created tension in our relationship 
And of course, I became very defiant. I started to lash out, talk back even more because I was angry. I look back now, Simon, and and this is a lesson. If anybody who's listening to this is a parent, I wish my mom, when she knew that I was smoking pot, would have asked me why I was doing it and not just looking at the fact that I was doing it because I was struggling. And I knew inside that I I loathed myself. I loathed who I was as a person. I loathed the fact that I didn't have a girlfriend. I loathed the fact that I wasn't good at sports. And I began to self-medicate. And then, of course, as you self-medicate, you feel even more poorly about yourself because you know you're not making good decisions. And what really did me in with my mom was she was in the hospital I was right around, I guess I was in my late, late stages of being 15 because 16 is when I got kicked out of her house. She was in the hospital. She was having an operation done. And again, trying to fit in, trying to be the cool kid. I decided to have a party when she was in the hospital. Cops come. I run from my own party. And then again, more layers of trauma, pain, tension in my relationship with her. And then on my 16th birthday, she caught me weighing out some pot to sell to a neighbor because at this point I was starting to sell pot a little bit on the side to support my habit because it's hard to support your habit as a teenager when you're getting paid, you know, close to minimum wage with a job. And then I got kicked out of her house, sent to my dad's house, changed schools within 24 hours thinking that would change my behavior, but it only made things worse. Okay. So we've got a little bit here to unpack. I want to slow down and cover a couple of things here. You mentioned there that if someone was listening, like you kind of wish that your mother had sat you down and asked you why you were turning to marijuana rather than just the fact that you were doing it and whether that was right or wrong. But my question is, I mean, that can often be sort of easier said than done. Do you think that if young Doug was asked why he was doing it, he would have had the sort of maturity and self-awareness to, to have that conversation then and it to have been a productive conversation? It's interesting, Simon. I look back and, and I can't fully say that I would have. I mean, I'd be lying if I said yes. I would have been totally like obedient and opened up vulnerably. But I think the problem is there is no real easy solution in these situations But I think with that, it at least gives somebody a chance. Whereas if you come down on somebody, you're automatically virtually pushing them further away from you. And that's kind of what happened was the drugs were the problem. Like I was considered almost bad for smoking and doing what I was doing. And again, my behavior reflected that. I was no prince growing up. But I think looking back as a result of that, I think if she had asked me why, it would have been hard for me to fully open up because I wouldn't have wanted it to get back to my dad that I didn't get along with him. Like if I told my mom that, or I didn't want to be the kid who like told on kids at school for bullying me and calling me names and that sort of thing, because that's also frowned upon obviously. But I think if there's going to be any hope of saving a kid when he's experiencing this, people have to get to the root of why they're acting out because drugs are just a symptom of something that's going on inside. Yeah, I guess the easier thing can be to judge the behavior. That's almost like the impulse way to sometimes approach that, right? Yeah, because we're not really taught how to deal with this stuff. There's not like a lot of classes, so to speak, that I think are proactive for parents, or at least there weren't back then, to say this is how you can healthily intervene with your kid when he's doing drugs or acting out irrationally because we had this D.A.R.E. program in the States, which was just say no to drugs. That was like the big campaign. 
And it's just not as simple. If it was that simple, we wouldn't be where we are today with the drug epidemic, right? Because it's just not as simple as saying no. But I think what tends to happen is parents, in many cases, again, not intentionally, I don't think, or shame the kids because they come down on them, judge the behavior like you were saying. And the kids are already feeling like crap about themselves. Trust me, everybody who's in that situation is not feeling good about themselves. No matter how much they want to say they are or not to just cover it up, when they're abusing drugs, when they're acting out, when their relationships with their family members are, are being damaged based on their behavior, they're feeling super low about themselves. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's not that the parents are, are coming at this with some sort of the wrong intention. The right intention is there. It's just the the strategy. And what you're talking about is peeling back the layers a little bit and getting closer to the root source of the reason for that behavior. Now, you're 16, so your mother has caught you weighing marijuana and, and now understands that you're not just using it, but you're also involved in distributing it to your friends and dealing it. And I wonder what the next parts of this story are. And, and also, we haven't spoken much about school, but I wonder, were you going to school during this time? And what was going on with your grades and what your teachers thought of you and that sort of side of things as well? Yeah, absolutely. And before I get into that, there was something that came to mind that I think your audience will relate to. And I know you talk a lot about nutrition. And it's very similarly that let's say you go into the doctor and say your blood pressure is through the roof. And what tends to happen is they'll be like, oh, just here's the medication to fix the blood pressure. They won't ask you typically, well, what are you eating? What's your workout patterns like? How's your sleep? How's your stress? That's the same thing with some of the kid like, or anybody who's struggling with drugs when you just come down on just the symptom, the drug. You're not looking at what's underneath of that. So I just kind of wanted to make that analogy. Maybe if that helps your audience understand more, like, okay, this is kind of how you have to do it. So again, my mom, when she kicked me out of my 16th birthday, I think she had the best intentions for it, but it was the worst thing that could have happened to me in that moment because I needed my mom in that point in my life. I was hurting. I was struggling. I had all this baggage that I'd already stacked up by the time I was 16 that I needed love. And back then, I guess it's tough love and thinking that that was going to change my behavior, but it created more damage in my life. And here's what happened. So I go and change schools the next day, like virtually the next day, go live with my dad full time, which felt like the ultimate sense of betrayal for me. And, and in school, I was a smart kid. It wasn't like I had no aspirations. I mean, I, when people asked me what I, what I wanted to do when I grew up, I had answers. Like obviously it changed throughout my schooling. It might've been an astronaut, might've been something in sports, lawyer, FBI, accountant. Like I had these, these visions in my head and I got good grades. But the problem was I started to skip class with my friends because again, anytime I could act out and do the thing that would have considered me to be like against the law or whatever, I did. And when I went to this new school, I would begin to cut class even more and, and ride around with my friends and, and get high, listen to music, go eat unhealthy food. And, and that was life. That was what life looked like during high school. And it got so bad that I almost didn't graduate high school. And not because I had poor grades, but because my attendance like almost reached that threshold where I didn't attend enough classes to be eligible for graduation. And... If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, 
the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. As I graduated high school, I had gotten in to many schools. There was some that I applied to that I got into, and there were some that I wanted to go to that I didn't get into. And when I graduated, there wasn't money really to send me to college, and I didn't fill out the paperwork to get aid or whatever. So obviously, there was some misdoing on my part. And so now I'm graduating school, and I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? I can either go get a job, make money, take community college serious, or I can sell drugs. So I decided to, of course, to sell drugs. And at this point, after I graduate high school, I'm now selling drugs to make money. I had met some connections. I had met some new people and decided I was going to be the, the cool guy and make a living and feel wanted. And here's an important thing that, that I really didn't realize until like later on in my journey was that when I would sell drugs and people would call me and blow up my phone and say, hey, Doug, I need this. Hey, Doug, I need that. Or if I was out and I couldn't answer my phone and I have all these missed calls, there was this void inside of me that was being filled from being wanted 
or being loved in a way that I didn't have because my relationships with my family was so damaged that I didn't have a relationship with a girl. And then and in the same token, as you graduate school, the more drugs you do and the more you sell, you graduate drug classes. So now I started to experiment with things like cocaine. And I remember vividly this moment too, where I was going to pick up a bunch of pot from a dealer I'd met. And he was like, hey man, I got some Coke. You want some? And the same feeling, like I knew I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm like, yeah, of course, I'll fit in, do whatever I need to do to be cool, grab some Coke. We're on one of our rides where we would smoke pot with my friends. And I remember saying to one of my friends, hey, you want to try some Coke? And they were like, yeah, sure, like cut out a line. And I was obviously like afraid of what they were going to say if I was going to be judged. But I just think once you get past that tipping point, the people around you start to evolve as you do. Meaning I wasn't hanging out with kids that were just casually smoking pot anymore. I was hanging out with the kids that were doing it every single day, smoking a lot and into other things. And the problem was my addictive behavior and nature really caught up with me where, again, the same thing with the pot. Like one line turned into two lines, turned into three, and now I'm snorting Coke every day, building a tolerance to that. And here I am, I'm like... 17 years old. And the thing was, I was selling a lot of pot. Like I was picking up a few pounds a week or whatever. And I could have been like saving some good cash, but my profits were going up my nose. And I was, again, still overweight. Like my meals, just to give people an idea of what I would eat, it's very sad looking back now, is forget being like plant-based, like paleo, like, like any of that. Listen, like this, the stuff I would eat is disgusting. Like I would literally go to a sub shop and I would get a foot long cheesesteak, a couple pieces of pizza, fries, and I would eat this all in one sitting. And then dinner would look something very similarly, or maybe we'd go to McDonald's and I would get like five or six double cheeseburgers and fries and maybe a McFlurry. That's how I ate every single day. And I look back and it's just interesting now that I'm a trainer and very health conscious, that was what my life looked like. But again, it just shows you the power of health and the power of transformation where your decisions and choices can kind of change. So I'm snorting a bunch of Coke. I'm selling a bunch of pot. Like I said, I'm in my late-ish teens. I'm 17, 18 years old. And the problem with Coke is with me because I had a bunch of anxiety and fear, as I was saying, I had all these insecurities that were stacking up. It went about as well together as somebody trying to lose weight and eating pizza every day just did not work at all. And I started getting massive panic attacks. And this is back in, I don't know, like the mid to late 2000s, like 2006, 2007, 2005, somewhere in there. And mental health wasn't talked about in the same context as talked about today. I didn't know what a panic attack was. So what happened was one night, I'm riding around, I'm high as heck on Coke, my face is numb, my lips are numb, my heart's racing, I'm smoking cigarettes, because I was smoking like a pack and a half of cigarettes a day too. And I thought I was having a heart attack. And I had buried several of my friends up until this point, like several of my friends that I knew, not people that I like was acquaintances with or maybe worked at a job with, people that we hung around with had died from drugs, drinking and driving or car accidents. And so I was like, well, maybe I am dying. And I remember going to one of my friend's houses because I was staying with him because I was bouncing from couch to couch at this point because I'd been kicked out of my dad's house for just not agreeing to follow the rules that he'd given me and we just didn't get along, as I said. And I remember running into my friend's house 
just telling his mom, because he had gone off to college that I was having a heart attack. And she was like, what? So she ends up taking me to the hospital. I'm like freaking out, get into the emergency room. I, I run in, I'm screaming, I'm dying, I'm dying, help, I'm dying. And they said, sir, just sit down, you're not dying. And I'm like, yeah, I'm dying. And I'm thinking to myself, do they not understand that I'm having a heart attack right now? And they finally admit me into a room and hook me up to IVs and stuff. And they're like, what drugs are you on? And at first I was like, nothing, I'm having a heart attack. And they were like, no, what drugs are you on? And we began to have a conversation and they hooked me up. They started looking at my heart and they were like, based on everything you've just told me, your heart looks really good. They're like, you just had a panic attack. And I think the problem is people begin to obsess about it. Meaning it's not the panic attack that breaks people. It's the fear of when the next one's going to come and you create this sense of anxiety on your own about it and almost creates panic attacks from that. And then you tie it to a situation. Meaning if I was putting two and two together, I was building this thing up in my mind that every time now I got high, I would have a panic attack. So what happened? Every time I got high with my friends, I had a panic attack. It was embarrassing. Like it was literally embarrassing. I would get so high and my anxiety would be so bad. I have to pull over my car on the side of the road and have my friends drive, which you can imagine as a teenager driving around, like it's not the best look. And so what actually ended up in the moment helping me, because you would think at this point that I would make a logical decision and say, you know, life isn't good right now. I just went to the emergency room thinking that I was having a freaking heart attack as a teenager. You know, I've been to several funerals. I'm selling all these drugs. I can't hold a job. I can't maintain a relationship with my family. You would think something needs to change, Doug. But no, I felt so connected and my identity was so wrapped around my lifestyle of doing drugs and the people I was surrounding myself with because of the lack of my relationship with my family that I needed to do whatever I could to maintain that lifestyle. So one of my friends was like, hey, I have painkillers. You want to try a painkiller and try a five milligram Percocet? And I didn't know. First, I want to say I knew I wasn't putting kale or spinach in my system, but I had no idea how quickly I would become addicted to this. So I take the five milligram Percocet and the same monkey that came off my back when I took that first hit off of a marijuana pipe came off my back again when I took that Percocet. And I was like, wow, I can get high and do the stuff without having a panic attack. I need to do more of this. So five milligrams. And again, I'm like, at this point, I'm like right around 18, 19 years old, five milligrams turns into 10 milligrams, turns into 20, all the way up until I'm putting three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin up my nose every single day, spending hundreds of dollars a day. I'd have to do 150, 160 milligrams just to be able to get out of bed. Are you still smoking pot and using cocaine at this time as well? Yeah, for the most part. My cocaine usage, like I think, slowed down at that time. Not that I wouldn't, I think, do it here and there, but once I realized how much it contributed to my anxiety, that was like an easier thing to kind of like go of a little bit, even though I was addicted to it. And then the, the pot, I was smoking like a quarter ounce of pot a day. I was, I mean, it wasn't like I was just casually smoking out of a bowl. I was ripping bong hits and smoking blunts. It was just, it was very excessive. I think one of the interesting things that you're describing here, which is obviously incredibly common with substance abuse, is you said then you would think that the sort of logical 
rational way of looking at that situation was understanding that these behaviors weren't serving you and going a new direction. But you were layering substance over substance as another way of escaping. And it sounds like you weren't self-aware at that time of exactly what was going on and that you were chasing that avenue of escaping from the things in your life that you would have had to have otherwise dealt with? Yeah. I think what happened, Simon, is our external world is a reflection of how we feel inside, right? Like people who eat healthy or people who move their bodies and people who take care of themselves typically have some sense of, of confidence about the way they feel about themselves or they know that they're going that way. They love themselves enough to know that eating good, working out, taking care of my health is good for me. And the flip side is also true. So when you're feeling so low about yourself and you just have no self-esteem, no self-confidence, you're going to make choices that are in line with that, right? Because you're going to start to hang out with people who are making those same choices. You're going to start to do things that your highest self wouldn't do because you're not your highest self. So to you, you have your gut instinct isn't the same as what it was. And the other thing is that your environment creates a false sense of normalcy. Again, I'm going to say this again because this is super important for people listening. Your environment creates a false sense of normalcy based on who you surround yourself with and what you surround yourself with. And the analogy I like to use to give some context is this. And just say that I'm a guy, so I'll say, let's say I'm going to the bar and I'm married and I'm spending eight, 10 hours there every single day getting super drunk. And I come home and my wife is like, Doug, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. I'm just having fun. Like, what's wrong? She's like, you have a problem. I'm like, no, I don't. Everybody else is doing it. Or I'm right. Everybody else is doing it because they all have drinking problems. So to me, that's normal because that's all I know because that's what my surroundings are like. And you get caught in that sometimes, Simon. And so, but the other side can be true as well, where you start to surround yourself with like-minded people that have common futures and not common past, people that are into health, people that are into setting goals, people that want to better the planet, whatever it is, you're going to become that person because you're, we are creatures of our environment. And I strongly believe that based on my own experience. That's one of the core principles of the Blue Zones, which is, uh, you've probably heard of them, Dan Butner identified them, and they're just various locations around the world that have great health and longevity. But one of the core aspects of that is shared among those five zones is that they have a very close-knit tribe of friends or family that do share similar core values and live a similar lifestyle. Yeah. And I think your friends can either bring you up or they can bring you down. And I always say this from just experience. I mean, I've experienced both sides of it. And not that the people that I was surrounding myself with were bad people, because again, I didn't want somebody thinking I was a quote unquote bad person for the choices I was making, but they just weren't making choices that were aligned with say who I am today. And I think what the, one of the hardest things about changing your life or just quit using drugs is leaving those people behind because you feel guilty, you feel ashamed. You say, oh, what are they going to think of me? Am I going to be the only one who survives? Like they were there for me. And then that ends up costing you your life in some cases. And I always invite people when they're in this situation 
it's like, do you want to make a short-term sacrifice now so you can live a life full of prosperity, health, wellness, and you have a good core of things in your life? Or do you want to be that person 10, 15 years from now looking back, which a lot of people do and saying, I wish I would have chosen myself. I wish I would have taken that time to spend some time alone and done some self-discovery to figure out not only who I want to spend time with, but what I'm about. What am I into? What do I actually want to do with my life so that you can start to implement the right people around you? And sometimes shedding those people from your life can also be the thing that person needs as well on the other end. Right. Now, obviously, there's a lot of codependence when it comes to, to not just addiction, but with life. And sometimes, even though it might not seem like they are, people kind of cheer for you. And they look at you and they're like, wow, like I can't believe he's doing that. And inside, I think what happens with some of these people is they'll say things like, I can't believe you're doing this or you're being a wuss or you're not going to make it. Like, you know, this is our life. And inside, they're just in a way jealous that you took that step and they wish they could take that step too. It's like the analogy that people use. I've heard it used with the crabs and they're like the pot of boiling water where if the one crab crawls out, the other crabs are trying to pull that other crab back in. I don't know if that's the right analogy for the show, but I, you know what I'm you know what I'm getting at. I'm just trying to make people understand that when you try to leave the nest, when you try to leave that place of despair, people are going to try to bring you back down. And it takes a lot of strength, it takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of confidence to just know that it's okay to walk away and that people make a conscious choice on some level, not to grow and evolve with you. You didn't leave them. People just chose not to come along on the ride with you. Okay, so at this time of your life, though, you hadn't yet shed any of your friends or group of friends, right? So you had developed this new sort of dependence. Was it Oxycontin that you said? Yeah, Oxycontin. So talk me through that a little bit before we move on. Oxycontin, like how do you get that? Is that something that you had to sit down with a doctor and, and get a prescription for or you're buying this off the street? Like how are you actually, how are you self-medicating? I guess I, in some ways, I wish I could say that a doctor gave it to me and I had someone to really blame. I don't. I got it purely illegally. I, when I got the five milligram from my friend, I decided to say, wow, like, I see how great this makes me feel. And I had made so many other connections in the drug dealing game that I just started asking around who had the stuff. And then what happens? What, what you look for, you get. So I started to get more of it. I started to meet people who had connections to pharmacies. I started meeting people who had connections to people who had like cancer that were getting these massive prescriptions of these pills and selling them to us. So the way it worked was Oxycontin was like the bread and butter. It was like the superfood, if you will, of painkillers. It was like the best of the best, right? And you would get different milligrams. So the branded Oxycontin pills, they would have whatever milligram the pill was on one side and an OC on the other side. So there was a 10 milligram pill, there was a 20 milligram pill, there was a 40, there was a 60, there was an 80. I think at one point there was like a 160, I think, I believe too. Not when I had done stuff though, this is before my time. And the 80s are what we did, 80 milligram pills is what we worked our way up to. And originally it would start up, you get an 80 milligram pill and they had time releases on them because they're meant for people with like terminal illness. They're meant for people with like massive pain, cancer, that sort of thing. 
And so you would lick the time release off. And when you lick the time release off, and you're snorting it makes us. the high instantaneous. Because now you're getting this massive rush of Oxycontin that's intended to hit you over the long term of the day. Snorting it. So initially, you would get like one 80 milligram pill and you might break it up between a few friends. So you're only snorting maybe 20 milligrams each or 40 milligrams each, depending on how many people are there. And you would cut it up with a with a credit card. I'm sure if people have seen maybe movies where this stuff happens or shows or even you've experienced this or have had friends or loved ones or whatever, and you crush it up with a credit card, and then you snort it with a with a dollar bill. I used to use, I mean, I was selling drugs, so I'd get a lot of cash. So I used to use like 50s or 100s. You felt like again. a rock star. Like this thing that I was, had this some level of like arrogance that I just need, only could snort with, with that kind of bill. And you're... T- I did. I felt like Johnny Depp in Blow, if anybody's seen that movie. And that tolerance begins to build. And there's a pendulum that happens. I wanted to point this out where initially, I think for a period of time, you're doing drugs to fit in and be cool. And then there's something that starts to shift where you're doing drugs to hide the pain and the shame of becoming a drug addict. And that's kind of what happened to me after I started doing Oxycontin and after I felt this numbing feeling. So when you're high on Oxycontin, here's what it feels like. So just imagine getting the biggest euphoric rush. And at the same time, it's this massive sedative where it numbs pain. How addicting is that? Especially if you're somebody like me that had all kinds of troubles in my life. How addicting is that feeling? Very. And again, when you're doing these drugs and you're destroying your brain, your brain's being hijacked now. Because now I, my brain was already twisted, obviously, to this point. But now my my vision of what happiness and pleasure looked like was solely based on being high, that I began to make other poor decisions selling drugs. I began to make other poor decisions in the relationships I had left, jobs. I mean, by the time I was 21, I had 21 jobs, just to give people an idea of of how good of an employee I was. (laughs) Not good. And this this volcano of addiction for me erupted very fast because it wasn't like I was one of these kids who used Oxy for years and years. It was like a year or two of just going super hard. And then everything came to a head for me on Cinco de Mayo of 2008. You had alluded to that I went to jail. And this was the day. This was the day that I thought my life was over. I thought it was all done on this during this night. And it was one of the biggest moments that it changed my life for the better and got me to where I am today. This is 2008. 2008. Okay, and I want to go there in a second. But leading up to this and using the Oxy, and you said you had 21 jobs at the age of 21, and we were talking about normalcy. Had you, at this stage of your life, come to the conclusion that this is going to be Doug's life. This is how Doug will live the rest of his life. We would always joke growing up that if we couldn't get high and party, what would be the point of living? And we idolized. Like I idolized like people who died, like the rock stars who died when they were 27. There was this poster, I remember, where they had the rock stars that, that died in their 20s and there was obviously other people that, that went out hard. That was like the cool thing to do. And because I had also buried several people that that I hung out with, I knew it wasn't 
out of the question. And also because my self-esteem was so low at that point. Like, again, that was my new normal was feeling like total crap about myself that I had no hope that I was going to live to see my 25th birthday, Simon, at all, based on the trajectory I was going. And at this time, where were things with your mother? Talk me through how the relationship had progressed or changed up to that point. It, it got really tense. It was, it, it obviously, when I started to do even more drugs and word got out that I was selling a lot of drugs, not just selling a little bit, it created a lot of distrust between her and I and a lot of shame and resentment on my end towards myself and then obviously towards the relationship I had with her and my dad and my stepmom at the time too. It was just a bad, a, a bad time. And I would try to have, I think, like a little bit of a relationship with my mom, but it just, there was a lot of trust that was broken between her and I and a lot of tension that it was hard to make any kind of progress because I would show up at dinner high or messed up or my brothers and I, we, we would, they knew what was going on. So it wasn't as easy as just me trying to hide things and then just show up. Like everybody knew what was going on. I had a reputation. And there was a point where I wasn't allowed like in her house. And it was just, it was hard because like I said, I needed her in that moment. But I think she did the best that she could in that situation because she just knew that something really bad was going to happen to me. And I don't think she really fully grasped what to do in that situation. Okay, so 2008 rolls along. Cinco de Mayo, which you just mentioned. Talk me through what happens on this day. Yeah. So Cinco de Mayo, 2008, it was a day that I thought was going to, in the moment, be a, one of my greatest setbacks, ended up becoming my biggest blessing. And here's what happened. So I was riding around with a few of my friends to go make a drug deal had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars in cash in the glove box. And Cinco de Mayo here in the States is one of the biggest drinking holidays of the year. So I'm driving a cop's running radar and I decide it's going to be a brilliant idea to flash my high beams at the police officer. And the reason I did that was because I had a busted headlight that I had been meaning to fix for months. But when you're doing drugs and selling drugs, all you care about is drugs. That's your identity. And nothing else outside of that really matters. So of course I didn't change the headlight. And me flashing the high beams at him gives him a reason to pull me over. Pulls me over. I stammer to get my registration and license to him because I just knew, I knew it was over. My heart was in the pit of my stomach. I was incredibly scared, nervous, the whole nine yards, everything you can possibly imagine was going through my head. One thing leads to the next. He pulls me out of my car and searches it and finds everything, finds the pot, finds the money, finds a scale, puts me in handcuffs and puts me in the back of his car. And in that moment, like I thought it was, I thought that was it, I thought my life was over. And I just remember sitting there and thinking to myself, like, how did I get to this point? Cause I think that's what happens when, when people go through these moments where they hit this boiling point where their life just falls apart. And all the bad choices that I made in my life came to a head. Because I was thinking to myself, how did this kid who just wanted to be loved, how did this kid who just wanted to have a girlfriend, how did this kid who wanted to be good at sports, like how did he get into the back of a police officer's car now facing potentially felony drug charges? And it was just a result of a bunch of bad decisions 
that I had made and choices in response to my circumstance that led me to that point. And I was taken to jail and I was charged with a felony, which was the possession with the intent to distribute marijuana. Taken to jail, my dad ended up bailing me out. And then I get out. You would think again, in these little moments where I would be like, maybe it's time to make a change, Doug. Maybe it's time to actually finally put your hand up and say, I need some help and I need to stop doing what I'm doing. And of course I didn't. Continue to do more drugs, sell drugs, and end up going to court September of 2008, September 30th, 2008. I go and I'm standing in court. The judge looks at me and he finds me guilty of the felony and he sentences me to five years. Everything's suspended but 90 days, meaning if I messed up, if I failed a drug test, if I got another charge, I could potentially do the full five years. Five years of probation, 200 hours community service, 200, 200 hours of community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looks at me and he says, Doug, I'm going to cut you a break. And I'm like, break? After what you just told me? And here I am, 20 years old. I don't think I'm going to live to see my 25th birthday. He's like, you're young. You're 20 years old. This felony conviction is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Here's what I'm going to do for you. He's like, if you complete everything without messing up, no misprobation appointments, you do your jail time, you do your community service, all these things, I will take the felony conviction off your record at the end of the five years and give you a PBJ. And clearly my confidence in myself to be able to do that was like negative 300. There was no way I was going to be able to do that. And so I'm like, all right, whatever. I leave court. Sorry, Danger Jay. Can you explain why that's a big deal in terms of having the felony charge removed and changed to a PBJ? Yeah, because I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here in the States back then, it's, things have, I think, changed since then a little bit. When you're a convicted felon, you, there's a lot you can't do. You can't vote. I don't think you could leave the country. You can't buy a firearm. You're on probation. You have to call a probation officer and let them know where you're going. There's all these things you have to do. And you have to check a box when you apply for a job. There's a question that would get asked. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Yes or no? I had to check the box now. And so my life, as I look back then, was, was pretty small. And I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And the reason I didn't, I guess if I had known that I was going to be able to achieve that, I would have been like, this is awesome. Thank you. But I didn't. So it didn't really matter because I knew I was going to be, I thought I was going to either be dead or overdose or whatever by the time I was 25. So again, it didn't really matter as much to me. And he gives me a few weeks to gather my belongings, get my stuff ready to go to jail. And I ended up reporting to jail a week after my 21st birthday, October 21st, 2008. And here's the wildest part of this whole story. I cried the day I went in the jail because I didn't want to go in. And the day I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave. And here's what happened. So mind you, when I'm going into jail, I have this horrific opiate addiction that I needed to kick. And I have all these, all the fears and things you would think about of what goes on in jail. Trust me, they were going through my head because here I was, unathletic, severely overweight, out of shape, unhealthy, no confidence, nothing. Walk in and I start detoxing off the opiates, which is one of the first things that happened. And what that feels like is it's like having the worst case of the flu. 
all the symptoms, uncontrollable bowel movements, you're vomiting, sleepless nights, insomnia, you're sweating, pain, like all the stuff, anxiety. But the worst feeling of it all, for me at least, was this massive feeling of trying to crawl out of your own skin that you get. And as I look back, I think it was the old Doug trying to leave me so that the new Doug could be like made new. And my soon-to-be cellmate I met at a Scrabble table. And he I like to describe him as a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club just to give some context. And he's still like, to this day, I mean, I've been a trainer now for over 10 years and seen a lot of people work out. He's one of the most jacked, fit guys I'd ever seen at that time. And he was like, what are you doing in here, man? And I started to tell him, like, you know, I was in here for drugs. And he, he could just tell there was something off with me because I was talking super quietly. It was almost like a zombie when I was going through my detox. I was so out of it. And he could just tell my confidence was super low. He's like, okay. And he was like, when you get done your detox, you're going to start working out with me. And I was like, dude, there's no way. Have you seen me? Like I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. And shortly after I saw him work out and he was doing thousands of push-ups, running like laps in the jail. He was climbing the, the fence or the poles and doing these pull-ups on the stairs, like all this stuff. And I was like, who is this guy? And one of the most pivotal moments for me was when him and I were having a talk one night and he started to take more interest in my story. And he's like, so what are you doing in here? And I'm like, you know, my parents got divorced and I got rejected by girls and I started making all these excuses. And he said to me, and I'll just give the PG verse, and he said, just quit being a wuss. And I was like, huh? Because in these moments when you're like in that state, you want to be coddled. You want to be told what you want to hear. But I got what I needed to hear. Like, and that's what changed my life. And here was this guy that had no skin in the game for my life. He was just my a guy that I was in jail with. It wasn't like a parent or a friend or at the time or whatever. And he said to me, he's like, you're blaming everybody for your problems, but yourself. He was like, you chose to get yourself here. He's like, whether you like it or not. He's like, there's plenty of people that go through what you went through that aren't here, aren't they? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> and he's like, you chose to get yourself here and it's on you to get yourself out. And he said, you got two choices. You can be a man or you can be a wuss. Again, this is the PG version, but you know where I'm going. And this, and again, the context of this is what changed it. He said, you can be a man, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I chose to get myself here and it's going to be up to me to get myself out and make the choices you want to, or you need to, to better yourself. Or you can go be a wuss, go cry in the corner, say, woe is me and blame everybody else for your problems and be a victim. And he's like, most people will do that. And I felt empowered because again, here I am like in jail and I had started to, again, detox from the drugs. So my mind was a little bit clearer and I was like, you know, up until this point, I thought I had it all figured out. But all the decisions I was making were, were good, right? Even though like part of me didn't, but again, I didn't want to change. And here I am in jail, convicted felon, selling drugs, doing drugs, overweight. And I was like, maybe he's right. So it inspired me, Simon. It inspired me to start working out. And my true fitness health journey began in jail. And I remember getting, I was in front of a bunch of grown men in this common area of the jail. And my, one of my biggest fears was being judged and having people look at me and being afraid of what people would think. And that all went away when I went down to do a push-up in front of all these guys. And I couldn't do one for my feet, couldn't even do one for my knees. And I remember looking at them. And I said, dude, like, 
why can't I do a push-up? He's like, because you're fat. And I hated that word. And again, I think when people are looking to make a change, you got to figure out what drives you. You got to find something inside. You got to dig deep into that pain and use that as a lever to change. And for me, that was one of the things. I hated that word. And I swore to myself that I would never be called that again. And he was like, I don't know what to tell you. He's like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He's like, you got a ton of belly fat on your gut. He's like, your core is weak, so you can't hold yourself up to do a push-up. So we got to strengthen your core so you can do a push-up. I'm like, okay. And I couldn't even walk up and down the steps there because I was so out of shape from smoking cigarettes. I was a mess. And it invigorated me. And we set a goal by the time I left my 90-day sentence to, to run a mile and do a set of 10 push-ups by the time I left my 90-day sentence, which now it seems super small. But back then, it was like Mount Everest. And he trained me in there every single day and, and promised to, to stick by me as long as I held up my end of the bargain, showed up to the workouts. And he gave me a little food plan in there where he kind of helped me cut out a lot of the processed foods and, and that sort of thing when I was in jail to the best you can. And slowly what happened was one push-up turned into two turned into three, turned into four. And I was able to do that set of 10 push-ups by the time I left my sentence. And then the running thing was cool. It started with me walking around the perimeter of the common area and I'd hold a deck of cards in one hand. And then every time I would make, I cross a lap, I would transition one card from my left hand to my right. So I knew how many laps I was walking at the time. And then slowly but surely, I would walk a couple laps and then I'd be able to jog a couple laps and I'd be able to run a couple laps. It just started stacking very similarly to the push-ups. And I started walking differently. I started talking to myself differently. That was one of the things that we, we had to work on was the way I talked to myself, the way I walked, my posture. I was always so slouched over because I felt like such garbage. It was hard for me to look at myself in the mirror that I was just so used to being slouched over. And it changed my life. It didn't just change it, it saved it. And I felt this sense of accomplishment that I never had before, this sense of self-discipline. I developed the ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable, which I think is pivotal in life. You have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Not to say that you got to make poor decisions to do that, but you just have to know life's going to throw you curveballs. Life's going to be tough. Life's going to be challenging. But what counts isn't that situation. It's how you deal with it. And the same demons that I had dealt with Growing up, the anxiety, the fear, the resentment, the regret, the feeling inferior that we talked about, I still felt that way in jail. But I learned how to reattach behavior to those emotions. And fitness was the catalyst for that. Fitness and changing my mindset, I felt better about myself because I was like, wow, I finally had been doing the things I know I should have been doing all along. Like I knew obviously that I needed to lose weight because I started to lose some weight when I was in there. I lost like a few pounds. And I knew that I needed to move my body. It's just, I had no confidence to do it. And that's one of, as a trainer, that's one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is they try to go from couch to marathon instead of couch to a five minute walk or couch just to the door. And that was one of the things that my cellmate taught me was he helped me understand the ability of patience and playing the long game in fitness. Cause like one of the things was, I was like, how long is it going to take for me to lose all this weight? He was like, how long have you been beating yourself up for? your body. And I'm like a long time. He's like, it's going to take you a long time, Doug. And that stuck with me. It's somewhat ironic, isn't it? That the words that you needed, the voice that you needed, the helping hand came from, firstly came from within jail, not outside of it. And it might've been that change of environment for you, the penny dropped, and then you were able to actually hear what someone around you was saying. 
it seems like the timing was right there, but it also is somewhat ironic that the counseling and the advice and the wisdom and the working on self-talk, this was coming not from a counselor within the prison, but was coming from your cellmate. I want to understand a little bit more about your cellmate and, and his journey. Like how had he himself got into that position where he had this understanding and could clearly then apply the learnings that he had to help you? He had been somebody who had been in fitness for a long time in the prison system. He had been in, in jail, I believe, for the last 10 years before he was in the detention center that I was in. And I got lucky and I can see how all the puzzle pieces came together through that because he just happened to be on a detainer, which means he had violated like parole or probation in the state of Maryland, but was serving time in a different state and then had to come back for court for that violation and just so happened to be in the detention center I was. He was a little bit older than me, shared a very similar journey in the sense that he had struggled with drugs too. And he was full of wisdom. He just was a guy that just kept to himself a lot and was just very committed to helping me. And I don't know if it was because maybe he had lost some hope in himself and saw me and he just said, you know, like he's at the perfect time right now where I can help him. I don't know what it was, but he saved my life. And he was almost like a Yoda for me. Like, and, and it taught me the, the importance of mentorship and having people in your life that you can bounce ideas off of or having people in your life to challenge you. Like when I tell people, surround yourself with people who bring the best out in you, I don't just mean people who always are patting you on the back, people who are like gut checking you when you're not being your best and you're not living to your fullest and you're not being your best self. And I think that's one of the, the best things that you can do is have those people that can challenge you and push you. Because again, your environment creates a false sense of normalcy. So if you're around a bunch of people where you're just kind of just playing at, at average, I'm not judging people would do that, but there's probably a lot of people that I'm, I'm guessing listen to this show that want to take their life to the next level. If you're around a bunch of people that are playing small and playing average and or gossiping or just constantly patting themselves in the back for making poor decisions, you're going to become that person. So it showed me the, the importance of having people in my life that pushed me to be better, even when I didn't want to be. And the big thing is, I think what happens, at least it happened for me, is my face was so thick in the mud, Simon, and I had no faith. I'd lost complete hope in myself, clearly based on my decisions, that what he did for me is he just took my head and he just pulled it up just a little bit so I could see a little bit of light in front of me. And once I saw that light, it gave me some hope. And when I left jail, I said, it was very emotional when I left, as you can imagine. I said to him, I'm like, man, like, how do I repay you? Because I didn't think I was going to be able to live with, without his help anymore. I was like, up until this point, I've been alone and I'm in jail. And the only variable, the only thing that's changed now is having my, my cellmate train me and help me out and stuff when I was in jail. And when I asked him how I could repay him, he said, pay it forward and don't mess up. Now, when he said pay it forward, like I had never read like a self-help book. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, all right, whatever. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place and I still have it here. So I never forget where I came from. That's been the biggest thing for me is I never, ever want to forget where I came from. 
ever. And I think a lot of people, when they experience a lot of success or they get some fame or whatever, I think sometimes what happens is they forget that they were that person in chapter one. They forget that they were that person that was struggling hardcore. And there's a lot of people who don't. There's a lot of people, obviously, who don't do that. But I think what happens is when you forget, it can sometimes cripple you in a negative way because you lose a sense of humility, you lose a sense of gratitude, and you forget that a lot of this stuff can be taken away from you at any minute. And so when I left, I was obviously scared because I had, again, up until this point, I had proven to myself that I wasn't going to be successful. But I had to make a tough decision. I mean, there was this 95% chance that I was going to fail. Like the odds were stacked against me based on my track record. But I knew if I focused on that and I paid attention to that, that I would fail. I just would. Think about it. If I'm like just constantly thinking you're going to fail, like you failed so many times before, like all these things, like I'm going to fail. But I knew if I could just be relentless and lean into that 5% or whatever that percentage was and have blind faith that even though I couldn't see in front of me where I was headed, I just knew that if I did every single thing that I knew I needed to do, whether it was exercising, eating right, staying away from certain things, people, and all that stuff, it gave me a shot. Where if I went the other way, it would have completely disqualified me and it it saved my life. So I want to to dig into, I guess, some of the practices and strategies that you use to stay on that path. Because I think the first step is what you're describing of sort of being aware and understanding that there is a better path, but then actually putting that into action and sticking with it is, that's another task in itself. But before we do that, you said that you feel it's very important not to forget our past. But what I want to ask you about that is, while you haven't forgotten about chapter one, have you been able to forgive yourself and let go of, because sometimes someone can have endured a period of their life and live with regret and guilt, which can impede one from feeling truly happy and gathering more meaning in their life. So can you talk to that? Of course. And yeah, I want people to know that what I'm saying here isn't to focus solely on your past. It's to just not forget where you came from and still try to remain somewhat humble and just kind of have that in the back of your mind because what tends to happen in some cases is people forget that, that side of them and they be, and people can lose sight of that and it can lead to negative consequences. It took me some time to forgive myself. And to be honest, I'll go back to this in a minute because there are some things in my life that led up to the moment where I knew I had to forgive myself. And I, I realized I had another I don't want to say a rock bottom moment, but I had a a point where it was like a make or break and fitness couldn't be the only thing that helped me anymore. So here's what happened. So when I got out of jail, my grandparents took me in and my grandparents have always been like my saving grace. They've been there with me through the years. And they said, you can live here, but there's going to be some conditions. They said, you can stay here um, rent free. We'll buy your food. We'll give you some spending money. But here's the thing. You got to take care of yourself. You got to work out. You got to have a job. You got to bring us receipts. You got to be respectful, like the whole nine yards. I was like, okay. And it was kind of what I needed at that time. And I stayed on the workout plan that my cellmate gave me. And there was times where I tried to 
to short circuit some things. So I got out like the day after Christmas of jail. So it was winter time here in Maryland. And I remember we, we exchanged a few letters and I wrote to him and I said, I don't know if I can run outside. It's, it's too cold. Essentially what he said to me, he's like, I train machines, you know, go to the store and get some sweatpants. So off I went and got sweatpants and I made it through that. But that became my new normal, Simon. And honestly, I think I got lucky when I was in jail that I created these new patterns in my head where I was able to just rewire my brain in, in a couple months based on some of the decisions that I had made when I was in there. And then it carried on with me when I got out that now I just had a new routine and I was able to, to stay diligent on the exercise. And I started to make other decisions in my life where I now got really interested in nutrition. And so I started to read different health magazines. I started to read different books, got into cooking. I would watch the Food Network with my grandparents because I would, it got to a point with my friends where I didn't align with them anymore. Like I, I literally would sit there and it was almost like an awkward first date where you have nothing to talk about because I was more into cooking healthy food or, and exercising and their ideas of having fun were different, which is fine. That was what they were into. And so I would sacrifice and stay with my grandparents on the weekends and stay in and, and watch the Food Network, teach myself how to cook. And then I, I just, I saw this massive transformation happen in my health where I started to, to lose more weight and started to feel a lot better about myself where I had lost, you know, like 50 pounds and I got to a place fitness wise where this was back in late 2010, where I wanted to become a personal trainer. And I remember there was a, a local wellness center that I called and I applied for a job and my felony haunted me. So I went in there and had this interview and was super excited, by the way, because I was like, man, I found my passion. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to pay it forward. Like, finally, I can do this, this thing and, and pass the torch that my cellmate had given me. And I remember sitting down with the hiring manager, and she could just tell I was ecstatic. And she was like, pretty much like you're hired. But I said, hey, listen, there's, there's, there's one thing that you, didn't, that you don't know. I'm a convicted felon. And I just knew I was going to have to do a really good job of explaining myself. And I just said, listen, I'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes I said, I'll pee in a cup every day. I'll do whatever it is, whatever you need me to do. I just want this job. Fitness saved my life when I was in jail. And after talking to HR and talking to different people, submitting my court documents, they gave me a chance. They hired me and I took that job, ran with it. I officially got certified as a trainer in April of 2011. So it's been a little over 10 years. And I found a new high, if you will, of helping other people use fitness to change their lives. And I think it was more because I was able to relate to people because a lot of people, Simon, and you know this, the goal isn't necessarily to lose weight. The goal was just to feel better. The goal was to be able to look at themselves in the mirror and say, I'm happy with who I am. I'm happy with the way I feel and the way I look. And there was many times in my life where I felt the opposite, where I hated myself. I looked at myself and I was depressed. I was angry, like all these things. And and I could relate to people because they would come to me and they would say, I want to lose weight. And I'd start to ask them different questions of why, again, why? And I would start to dig into that. And I didn't really know what I was doing other than I just took interest because I knew that in some way I could relate. And I found myself in a flow and a rhythm. And by the grace of God, I built a really successful personal training business at this wellness club and time flew by. And so in the fall of 2013, my probation was up. And I completed all the stipulations the judge had given me. And one of my clients was a lawyer. And we wrote the judge uh, a letter for modification of my sentence. 
and went to court in January of 2014. And he took the felony conviction off my record. And it was interesting. And I still, I, again, faith has been a big part of my life, which is where I'm going to get into the forgiveness part. And I think it's going to hopefully hit home with some people. Again, not like in a religious way, just in a belief and forgiveness way. On the same day I went back to court, I just so happened. I, th- that winter, I had trained a bunch of college kids and we, the Baltimore Sun had done a feature on like trends of, of college kids when they were home, what they were doing. And they happened to do one on a group of girls I was training. And it just so happened that the article came out that day I went to court and I was on the front page of the health and fitness section. So my lawyer literally had the the paper with the judge to show the judge. And he was like, how did you pull this? Like, look at my lawyer, like he had something to do with it. And he was like, I'm not that good. But I, I then had this feeling that somebody was looking out for me. And when I left court, I didn't realize how much my life had changed in a matter of seconds from being like shackled as a convicted felon to now being a free man and being able to vote, being able to travel, do all the things that I couldn't do in prior. And I decided to write my first book and share my story because I had realized that I had just been given this gift. And that's what inspired me to write my first book from felony to fitness to free to inspire people to make the most of their second chance, turn negative into a positive and focus on how far they've come and how far they have to go. And so several months go by and I am incredibly fit, 5% body fat. I'm like, potentially trying to compete for a men's physique competition. I'm making great money as a trainer and being recognized within the company. But life started to get really shallow for me. And what was happening was I had all these resentments still and all these regrets. And I looked back and I was like, I wish that my relationships with my parents were better. I couldn't maintain a relationship still with a girl because I would like bounce from one to the next. And it was almost like I was using my body as validation because when I was a kid, if you had asked me what I wanted, what would make me happy, it was to be in a relationship and be jacked. Like that was what I would have needed when I was younger to be happy. And I had, I was jacked. I mean, I was very strong and fit and I still wasn't a hundred percent happy because I would still look in the mirror and I would see the old Doug. Like people would tell me that I looked like the actor, Mark Wahlberg. And I still would look in the mirror and not believe it because in my head, I still saw the Doug of the past. You do look a lot like Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Thank you. So, so one of my clients, ironically, around this time was saying, you should come to church with me on like Sunday. And I'm like, dude, I don't believe in anything, man. I said, because when I, growing up, I grew up more like old school, like religious, where I knew if I was good, I went to heaven. And if I was bad, I went to hell. And I was on the highway to hell. So there was no, no belief in anything other than me at this point. And I also was like, if God's about love, then why am I being picked on? Why is all these bad things happening to me? Like playing the victim and this and that. And I was like, nah, man, I'm not going to come to church with you. I was like, I'm, I'm going to hell for putting you through this workout. Like I don't belong there. And then again, these, this anxiety, these resentments kept still coming up. And one of my mentors was like, dude, like you have all these other things going for you. You have a good group of friends. You've written a book. You're sharing your story. You're a good looking dude. Like you're a great trainer. I think you just need some faith in your life. You need something outside of yourself. And I remember just after that, there was a moment that transpired where I was like, you know what? I need to give this thing a try. And I called my client and I said, hey man, I think I'm ready to give this like Jesus thing a try. Now again, I support all forms of spirituality. You do what works for you. I'm just, this is my story and my experience. And this is what helped me get through a lot of the stuff that we were talking about a few minutes ago. 
And I remember when I called him, it had literally, his reaction, it would just seem like he had won the lottery. And I was like, why is this guy so happy that I told him this? And I remember going into his office and praying this prayer. And the same monkey that came off my back when I was doing drugs came off my back again. And I started bawling my eyes out. And I remember walking out of this church confused. I'm like, what just freaking happened? Because up until this point, I didn't really believe in anything. I was like, that stuff doesn't make any sense to me. And I called my mom for the first time and apologized to her, like really apologized. And then over time, I started to realize that part of me died when I was in jail. And I was almost born again and made new. Like I, I feel like I have somebody else's memories inside of my head. I don't remember that person anymore. I mean, I, I do in a sense of, well, I don't want forget where I came from, but I look back and I'm like, I can't believe I did any of that stuff. And I also started to realize that even though I wasn't proud of a lot of the decisions that I had made, that God was because he used them not only to help me, but to help me help other people. And there was peace in that for me. There was peace in knowing that this was part of the plan and as cliche as it sounds to say that things happen for me and not to me, like we have no other option in life. Like if you think that everything's happening to you, you're going to respond super negatively. But when I just knew that it was all part of a bigger plan, it helped me realize that this is what happens. And it also helped me realize that the shame of my story, because even though I'd written the book and people were coming up to me and giving me a high five and saying it resonated with them, I still was ashamed of of my past. But I also had to make a decision and know that if people judged me for that, they weren't meant to be in my life because I didn't want people in my life who judged me for bad decisions I made as a kid. And that trajectory allowed me to forgive myself, forgive a lot of the people in my life that wronged me and accept a lot of the wrong that happened in my life for a greater good. And that life just wasn't about Doug Bopes anymore. And that you couldn't just make up the fact that here I was helping other people get fit when it wasn't that long before. And there was a guy in a jail cell helping me get fit. And I couldn't do that on my own. The beauty of fitness, Simon, is it kind of helps you establish this what's next mentality. And what I mean by that is you do one push-up, and then it's like, well, what's next? I'm going to do two. What's next? I'm going to do three. And then you could do 10. And then I get out of jail, and it's like, well, what's next? I'm going to do 15, 20, 30. And then I'm going to run a mile. What's next? I'm going to run a 5K. What's next? I'm going to run five miles. And that started to spill out into other areas of my life where I was like, oh, I'm now going to become a trainer. Or what's next? I'm going to do this. Or what's next? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write two books. I'm going to write three. I'm going to share my story. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And as I look back at my life, it's been a series of what's next. It's like, okay, I've accomplished this. Awesome. I feel great because I achieved something I never thought I could. I never, like If you had asked me 15 years ago, if I'd be sitting on a computer right now talking to you on a podcast about the stuff that I did back then, I'd have been like, yeah, right. But doing things like this helps establish some, some more belief in myself that I'm A, on the path, and B to help me focus on how far I've come and then how far I have to go. Can I ask you, in terms of the fitness side and even beyond fitness, you spoke about fitness really just being a good way of then spilling over to other areas of your lifestyle where you're developing new habits, setting the tone for the way that you want to live, how you want to navigate the world. 
sometimes it's tricky to take a new behavior and turn that into a habit. And I know you have a huge number of experts on your show from neuroscientists and whatnot that you've probably dove into with regards to habit forming. But if you were to break down from your personal perspective and also the science that you've come across, what are some of the keys for someone that identifies a new behavior that they want to introduce and then moving from that being a very conscious action to becoming an unconscious habit and just a way of living? I think it starts with developing some sense of awareness of where you're at and then where you want to go. Because it's hard to set a goal if you don't know where you want that goal to take you, right? So for me, in my own experience, it's having that awareness of, okay, like I wanted to be the guy, for instance, who wanted to do a push-up and then get from that push-up to 10 push-ups. I knew where I wanted to go. And the other thing that I've found just from people I've talked to and not to get too much in the weeds, but I think it has to be simple. And and I don't mean simple as in just always easy, but you got to go from step one to step two, because your brain, when you achieve something, there's this sense of emotion. There's a sense of reward when you achieve something that's like, I want more of this, right? So for instance, if you're somebody who has never exercised before and you go out for a walk that you haven't taken in 15 years and say you walk five minutes, you're going to feel good. I guarantee you. A, you're going to feel good because you actually did it. B, you're going to feel good because of the feeling it gives you when you're done the walk. And then you're, you're going to tell your brain that feels good. I want more of that. So what are you going to do? You're going to go out and walk five minutes again, whenever, like the next day or whatever. And then you're going to build that up to seven minutes and 10 minutes. And then months are going to go by and you've run a mile. And where'd that all come from? It came back from the five-minute walk. But I think what most people will do is they will get out and try to run the mile before they walk five minutes. And then as a trainer, I like after talking to a lot of these people that I've had conversations with and even my own research, I've learned that there were some things I did wrong in my trading approach early on because I guess your level of success as a trainer in many cases is based on the results you get your clients, right? And so... A lot of people, they want to achieve goals fast. That's like what we want. And as I look back, there was probably a better way I could have done it. Again, not that I was intentionally doing it wrong. I never was. But actually now learning about the science of habit formation and what it takes, starting small and building off of that is going to get you a lot further than trying to hit a home run. Hitting singles is a, consistently is a lot better than trying to swing for the fences. You can swing for the fences every once in a while. If you want to, you're feeling good about yourself, you want to go out after you've walked for five minutes, like for a week or two straight, and you want to go out and try to walk 10, like that's cool. But don't try to go out and walk 30 when you haven't even walked for a minute. So again, it has to align with what you want. Because if, you're, if it doesn't align with what you want, there's not going to be a lot of motivation for you to do it. Yeah, speaking from my perspective with nutrition and helping people make changes to their plate, it's the same story. There's the very odd, rare case where someone can make a giant shift overnight and maybe that could stem from something they've seen or perhaps extreme loss of health personally or in their family and that acute event motivate someone to make big changes overnight and stick with it. But I think by and large, for the most part, 
when it comes to diets, the same as what you were talking about with exercise. It's small, little changes, getting some momentum, feeling good about those changes and having those wins on the board and then just progressing and stepping it out over time. You mentioned before self-talk and this is when you were talking about the period where you were in prison and your cellmate was helping you and you were working on improving self-talk. Now you're at this stage where you're helping other people achieve their goals. But in order to do that, the ability for you to do that by and large comes from first improving your own self-talk because it's very hard to actually to motivate someone else if you're not in that position. So talk to me about self-talk and some of the strategies and what you've had to work through to change that. The most important thing is this, is knowing that you're not always going to be talking to yourself in the best way possible. To me, that's super unrealistic. There's going to be times where you're talking to yourself in a way that you wouldn't want to talk to somebody else. And what I have personally learned is the more that I can accept that it's part of life, I can then stop myself from spiraling down that shame cycle that a lot of people go down. Because what tends to happen, Simon, is this, is you hear the story, somebody is feeling off for the day, they're feeling like crap, they're depressed, they're stressed, and they're like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling anxious? And they start to go down this cycle and it creates more stress, more anxiety, and a bad hour turns into a bad day, bad two days, bad week. So when I start spiraling down, I accept, okay, I'm feeling off, I didn't sleep well, how can I take some action? And the action could be writing down a few things that I'm grateful for. And when it comes to gratitude, I think what really works is getting some meaning behind what you're grateful for. And not just saying, I'm thankful for my body. Like, why are you thankful for your body? Like, why are you thankful for this person? Why are you thankful for that? And you're really attaching a sense of emotion to whatever it is you're grateful for. And then once you do that, it changes your perspective. Because if you're constantly focusing on what you don't have in your life, and maybe that's leading to the negative self-talk, or you're constantly focusing on what's going wrong or what you haven't accomplished, gratitude can really come in and mitigate that. Again, not make it go away, but it can at least lighten the load a little bit to say, okay, like here's some things I do have in my life. Here's some people that I do have. Here's some things that I have accomplished. And then some of the other things you can do is, and this is an important one too, is take action. And again, you don't have to go run a marathon, but for me, it's taking action in the sense where what are some things that I can do to make myself feel better that are also healthy and aligned with who I want to become or my highest self? So I'm not encouraging people to make like poor impulsive decisions. I'm encouraging people to have like that toolbox, that toolkit of knowing what works for them, not what works for me. What works for me might not work for everybody else, but for me, it could be calling a friend, could be going out for a walk, could be going for a run. It could be closing my eyes and just getting some prayer in. I, I like comedy. It could be watching something funny. It makes it make me laugh, like to change my mood, change my state. And then you can start to see that it'll mitigate and reduce the half-life of the adversity. And when people you know, talk to themselves in a negative way, it creates destructive patterns because again, like I said earlier in our conversation, our perception of ourselves can become distorted based on the lies we tell ourselves. If you start telling yourself that you suck or you're never going to make it or you're a piece of garbage, you start to believe that and you start to make decisions and choices based on that. 
So if you can change the context of your dialogue, and one of the things that I will do is I'll say, okay, like, how can I change the narrative? So if I'm saying I'm stressed, I try to honestly think, well, what am I blessed for? What am I grateful for? Because then again, when you're stressed, a lot of times what can happen is you're focused on things that you haven't accomplished. You're stressing out over work. Maybe it's a relationship. And when you can go on the other side and say, well, here's some things that I do have. It's just something about the way it works in your brain where you feel a little bit better. Again, the situation doesn't get better overnight, but your mood can improve. So those are some of the things I can do. I mean, I honestly, it comes down to three A's, three A's for me. Awareness, like being aware of what's going on. How am I feeling? Acceptance, again, accepting the fact that this is a normal part of life. And it's par for the course for what I'm going through. And then action, taking the action that's in accordance with where I want to go. Okay, great. So that's kind of speaking to dealing with the everyday stresses and the perhaps negative self-talk, which as you said, is not going to go away. You just need to learn how to react to it. I'm wondering with all of your experience, and you may have spoken to a few of the sort of pillars there already, but... What are the, for Doug, the non-negotiable parts of your life or in your day-to-day or in your week right now that you know, when I pay attention and get these things right, I'm really setting myself up for success and a positive outlook? I mean, off the top of my head, it comes down to the three Fs, which ironically were the title of my second book. It's Faith, Family, and Fitness. And so it's faith in God, faith in myself, faith in the plan. Again, because when we're going through hard times or even like when you're on a journey, we're all on a journey. It's not linear. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's being able to maintain belief in yourself and where you're going during the times when you're down. And and also having faith in other people, helping to lift other people up. It's part of like service for me is like when people are struggling, I think I have this gift to somehow get a message across, whether it's in my content or just on a personal level, to try to help them feel better about their state. Again, not to try to fix them where, of course, we're all guilty of that, but really just trying to speak some life into them. And then family isn't always necessarily blood. It's the people who bring the best out on you. It's the people who love, support, and challenge you unconditionally. So if I know that if I'm believing in myself, if I'm believing in God and the, and the purpose and the plan and everything, and I'm keeping my eye on the prize, and even though I'm experiencing a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of just unknowing of what's going to happen that I can still keep my eye looking forward on the light, on what's good in my life. And then family, if I'm spending time with people that are bringing the best out of me and family also can be online. Like what podcasts am I listening to? What am I watching on the internet? Who am I following on social media? That sort of thing's important too, because I don't, I believe in your nutrition also comes down to not just what you put in your body, but it's what you ingest through a screen. So there's faith, there's family, and there's fitness, obviously. And fitness, for me, it can be a variety of things, but it comes down to mental fitness, emotional fitness, physical fitness, and, and spiritual fitness. Here's the beautiful thing about these four pillars of fitness. You can be spiritually fit. You can go to church and maybe go out in nature, meditate, whatever you practice. And you can be emotionally fit. You can be somebody who goes to therapy or somebody who is great at managing their emotions and what have you. You can be mentally fit, somebody who's sharp, smart, all these things. doesn't guarantee you're going to be physically fit. You can't read your way into being healthy, right? You can't journal your way into being physically healthy. But 
the crazy thing about all of this. If you're physically fit, it enhances every one of those other areas of your fitness. And so if I can do my best on a consistent basis to get workouts, and for me, I like to strength train. That's just something I like. But I also like to be fit cardiovascular. I like to be the guy that can still run and do things that are practical in that sense for me. And nutrition, I mean, I, I do my best to eat well most of the time and I'm not 100% perfect. And honestly, I that was like another, I don't want to say it was an addiction, but it was an obsession for me when I first got out of jail and got on the health path because again, my logical brain was like, Doug, if you eat poor food, you're going to end up like the old Doug. And that actually worked in my favor for a long time because it kept me away from bad food and I got in great shape. But I got my identity so wrapped up in the way I looked and what I ate that it became toxic for me, as I was saying earlier. And so I, I try to eat well, and then I try to maintain a good sense of, of gratitude, spirituality, and just making sure I'm doing what I need to do to balance those levels of fitness. And then having the awareness and the courage and the humility when those things are off to reach out and ask for help. And ask maybe if it's a time in my life where I need to go to therapy, or maybe it's a time in my life where I need to reach out to a friend when I'm struggling to find my way out of something, just something where I know that I don't have all the answers and I can seek it out from somewhere else. And again, going back to my cellmate, that's what set this all up for me, was knowing that I don't know everything. And I think the minute that you're the smartest person in the room, it's time to get yourself in another room. That's been the great thing about the podcast is some of these people I interview are so much smarter than me that I'm so nervous like talking to them because a lot of it, even though it might seem like I understand what they're saying and what's going on, a lot of it, I don't exactly. I mean, I have a good context of it, but you know, a lot of the normal person might not be able to understand all this crazy science stuff. And also coming from a guy who barely passed science in school. But what it's done is it's challenged me to say, Doug, you got to do the research. And also you got to have some humility and knowing that I'm not going to know everything. I'm going to go into some of these conversations and be like a novice, be a rookie. But I think what you need to do in these moments is also have the wherewithal to be open to learn and embrace new knowledge, new levels of science. Like you and I have obviously connected over that too with our discussions over things. And it's just the spice of life. It, it really is. And I've just been on this massive mission ever since I got out of jail to help other people use adversity to their advantage. And I didn't, like, I know that's the name of my podcast today. And it's been, as I look back, it's kind of been what I've been doing over time, whether it was just through fitness or through speaking, through different content or sharing my story like I'm doing right now helping to give people hope when they're feeling like I did back when I was a kid, helping people understand that while I don't think addiction and a lot of these things that happen to us are necessarily our fault or our choice, it's our choices that change the game though. And I always say like, how do you want your story to end? Like, how do you want it to end? Because here's what happens, Simon. Every good book we read, man, every good book, I would say that most of the time when you're reading a good book, it's because they love the comeback story. Maybe there's a few bad chapters in it. There's not everything is perfect. But what tends to happen is people get to that bad chapter in their life and they're writing their story and they take that pencil, their pen, they throw it in the sewer drain and they stop writing. And I just invite people, if they're listening to this and they're in one of those moments, just pick the pencil up, keep writing. 
no matter how many words per minute, no matter how many sentences at a time, just write and write and see where the story ends. I love that. And a lot of hope in that message. You mentioned addiction again there, and we haven't dug into that yet. And I'm interested in sort of understanding whether that's something you've had to grapple with since coming out of prison and if you've had any urge to use drugs again, is that something that you've had to contemplate and work through? And how is it when you get stressed or feeling down that you turn more to faith in these other practices that you've introduced and not to drugs? Initially, when I got out of jail, I had, I don't know if you want to say they were cravings because it wasn't like I was like eager to use a drug. But, and I've said this before, I think I got really lucky that when I was in jail, I had to deal with my emotions in a healthy way. Because if I didn't, I would end up in solitary confinement, probably beat up or whatever. And so I had to learn to deal with those demons in a way that was conducive for where I wanted to go. And so all the masks in my life came off. I was fully, for the first time in my life in those moments, I was fully naked and not physically, just mentally and emotionally, like with all the stuff that I had to face. And so when I got out of jail, I was so terrified of going back to jail because after seeing this big transformation, I promised everyone I wasn't gonna go back. And I had that to lean in on as a buffer. And when I was in jail, one of the other things that my cellmate taught me to do was to channel my pain into something positive. So he would say, like, think of what makes you angry. When I couldn't get that last rep in, think of what makes you angry. And I would think of what made me angry and I would get through it. So when I got out and I would run and I would work out, I would think of what made me angry. And I would, part of my driver was proving people wrong. Cause there were so many people in my life that doubted me that they were like, there's no way you're gonna make it. There's no way you're gonna get through this. And I use that as a lever for change. And so when I got stressed or when I got anxious when I was out of jail, because trust me, problems didn't go away. Problems were still there. My initial thought wasn't to go for a drug because I had rewired my brain to know that I can do other things to feel better about myself without using a drug. And that's where I would run. That's where I would work out. And I would channel a lot of that negative energy into something positive. I guess zooming in a, a little bit on addiction slightly more here, if we look at your story and you had your own path, some may say non-traditional, more of an unorthodox sort of approach to rehabilitating and, and the influence of your cellmate. And then you've got the likes of Rich Roll who talks about 12 steps and we hear about people using plant medicines, you know, anecdotally to sort of turn to and heal trauma and overcome addiction. There seems to be a number of different paths and avenues. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's well, first just accepting that the recovery is hard, it takes a village, but it's worth it. And the reason I say that is I think in any time where people are making a change for the better, people many in many cases will assume that life's going to get easier. Oh, I'm making a step in the right direction, so that means my life's going to get better. And I think a lot of times what happens is people don't realize when you get into recovery, now you're faced to deal with all the reasons that you use the drugs or excessive alcohol or whatever it was in the first place. And a lot of people, I think, can become blindsided, if you will. I thought my life was going to get better. I thought it was going to get easier. And no, it's like now you have to deal with a lot of the stuff. 
And there's many different paths to do that. And that was one of the inspirations for writing my book, The Heart of Recovery, where I interviewed people from all walks of life on how they've beat addiction and whatever way works for them. I never really went to the 12-step meeting, so I never got a taste of that. I think I went to like one before I went to court. I think my lawyer at the time was like, you have to go to like some classes to prove you're trying to better yourself for the judge. And I went and I like walked right out. It wasn't right for me at that time. And I also, I think, went to a meeting or two when I was in jail. But as far as the recovery approach, it wasn't something that I did. And if what I had done hadn't worked for me, then I could have had a different conversation and tried something else that might have been more traditional. And anybody, I have plenty of friends that are in the 12 steps. And anybody who knows me that's trying to get in recovery that didn't go to 12 steps or doesn't, I encourage them to go because I do think it's a great program. I don't think it's the only way as we've seen, but it's a great approach and it's helped a lot of people. And I invite people to say like, try it, put forth a hundred percent effort, go all in and see what it does for you. I invite anybody to try whatever recovery approach they feel drawn to, but whatever it is, go all in. Well said, Doug. I think uh, nearly at two hours here, so we can probably steer this ship home. But you mentioned before around doing podcasts and and you sort of take the position of being curious and, and not being an expert and wanting to learn along the way. And I do the same thing. And And my approach is as a host that if I can have a conversation with someone and learn a few things along the way and the listener can at the same time learn a few things along the way, then I think that's a productive outcome. And this conversation is no exception to that. I think you're certainly paying it forward, which was an important part of of your journey and an important part of the the healing that you did during that pivotal time when you were with your cellmate. Do you stay in contact with him or anyone in prison these days? It's a million dollar question, right? It's interesting. I dedicated my first book to him because I wanted people to remember that I never forget where I came from and how much he helped me. And And honestly, when I got out, he ended up getting out and then we ended up doing some workouts together. And it was cool because I was actually able to do his workout with him. Like we worked out together and not just the novice workout, but we've kept in touch off and on through the years and, you know, nothing like substantially consistent, I guess, but I don't forget about him and what he did for me in my life. And, And the fact that if it wasn't for him, I would not be, I don't think I'd be alive. I wouldn't be where I am today. And, and I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And it was a conversation I think hopefully is going to help a lot of people because I think there's a lot of people that are going through hard times right now, no matter where they are, and they're struggling and they're stressed out and maybe they need some hope or maybe they're struggling with addiction or they have somebody in their life that is. And I just think that this is a conversation that hopefully is going to help a lot of people. Certainly. And you know, it's not just speaking to someone who is dealing with addiction. It's the the themes in here around self-talk, negative self-talk. This is something we all experience. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing so openly. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing with your podcast. Very inspiring. So please keep doing what you're doing and please come back and, and let's do this again. Hopefully, in the not too distant future. As a parting note, you've mentioned your books. Can you just mention the names of those again? And also, are there any other books or resources, things that people could turn to that you think are valuable in terms of some of the themes that we've spoken about today? So I guess we'll start with my books, which 
I mean, I invite people to check out. I, I think they're, they can be helpful. It's from felony to fitness to free. It's my first one. And then Faith Family Fitness is my second one. And then The Heart of Recovery. So the, from Felony to Fitness to Free is just pretty much like a, a short book about my story. It's actually, I, I need to, I've thought about having like an updated version because that only gets to like a certain part of my journey. A lot's happened since then. I've written a couple other books. I've gotten, you know, to be on some amazing podcasts and different media stuff that's happened that I think is kind of cool. And then Faith Family Fitness is just, it's like, some of the top lessons that I've learned through the years with corresponding Bible verses and action steps, if that sits well with you. And then there's The Heart of Recovery. It's just the book I, I touched on where I interviewed 50 inspiring people from all walks of life who have beat addiction or enter in recovery in whatever way works for them. There's many different paths in there. But the themes are, I asked the same questions for a reason because I kind of knew what worked in recovery. I kind of knew like, that there has to be some self-awareness. Like people know what they need to do on a daily basis to stay away from whatever it was that got them in trouble. I knew that fitness was a crucial part. So I, we talked about their workout routines. I knew that spirituality was important. I knew that their relationships were important, like who they surrounded themselves with. And then um, like what the make or break moment was. So I invite people to check that out. And then as far as books, like books that have had an impact on my life, there's been a lot. I mean, if you're looking for a really good addiction, like memoir, you know, that one that really, I think this audience specifically will like, I mean, I really invite people to read Rich's book, Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra. It's such a phenomenal book. I mean, it's so well done. It keeps you on your toes. But yeah, there it is. <laughs> and it's, just, it's, it's a great story. And, and Rich is an amazing guy. And so I invite people to check that out. That's a great addiction recovery story. And then as far as personal development, like one of the books that I guess has changed my life is The Four Agreements, which is by Don Miguel Ruiz, which The Four Agreements are be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Always do your best and never make assumptions. And I think if we can just do those four things, gosh, how much better would our lives be? <laughs> So those are two books, I guess, to get people started. And then the podcast is The Adversity Advantage if people want to check that out. But this has been awesome. And also to connect with you on the socials, you're most active on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, I'm at Doug Bobst. And then DougBobst.com has a lot of my stuff on there too. You can buy the books there and check me out there too if you want. All right, perfect. Plenty of reading for the listeners there. Thank you, my friend. Uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah, sounds good. There we go. Hope you found that conversation interesting, informative, and perhaps even helpful in your own life. The take-home message for me was that Doug really had to start believing in himself, valuing himself and believing that he could do better. Ultimately, that's what led to his transformation and journey to building a new life, where today he's now showing up better and living a much, much happier life less destructive life. To sort of bring this full circle back to nutrition, which I mentioned in the introduction, I couldn't let you get away without anything food-focused, could I? Doug's been listening to some of the other episodes and, and, and since we recorded this, we've been trading a lot of messages back and forth and he let me know he's keen to lean in more towards a plant-based approach. So here's the deal. For the next 30 days, Doug is going to do a two-thirds or vegan before 6 p.m. diet. 
Now, you may be familiar with this if you've read part three of my book. It's on page 384. Anyway, this essentially means two plant-based meals a day and plant-based snacks. Doug will be doing a plant-based breakfast, plant-based lunch, and then dinner will be whatever he would normally have. Now, by way of background, Doug has tried a few times jumping all in. This is what he explained to me, jumping all in on a uh, sort of full plant, 100% plant, plant exclusive diet, whatever you want to call it. And he's found himself quickly reverting back to his old ways of eating. So this is where we're going to start with this sort of two-third vegan or vegan before 6 p.m. diet as Mark Bittman, the American author, has described it. And I'm hoping that with my guidance and all of your support, he finds it really enjoyable and also really rewarding. Perhaps at some point during the 30 days or at the end, I'll jump on an IG live with Doug and we can have a chat about his experience and share that with you. That's a wrap. We made it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Please do share them with Doug and I on the socials. And if you haven't yet, please take a few moments to leave a review for the show. As always, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you. I love your company. And I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.